joining me now on the Lakeshore Records podcast is probably the composer I've been dying to speak to the most over the, well, I don't know, it's been a good long, long time now, but joining me today, I'm thrilled to say, is Bear McCreary. Bear, how are you? Hey, well, Tony, how are you? I am doing very well now that I'm finally speaking to you. You've been on my mini hit list for a while, and uh, <laughs> I'm happy to be able to uh, to put a tick mark next to you now. So, uh, so this is good stuff. So, we're here today for Lakeshore Records, and uh, as everybody will know by now, Lakeshore Records are now releasing the uh, your score uh, for The Walking Dead, which uh, which is huge. I mean, this is this is a huge deal. Very exciting. Yeah, I'm thrilled. It's one of those things that it's kind of it's a little bit baffling as we uh, as we head down the road towards a new season that the record hasn't been out yet. But Lakeshore Records have righted that wrong and it will be coming your way very, very soon. But before we get into The Walking Dead and, you know, a ton of the other stuff that you've done, I, I want to go backwards a little bit if we can and just kind of find out a little bit about you and find out how. When did you actually become a fan of film music? Was this something that was uh, in your family, perhaps? Or is this something that you, you discovered yourself? Um, I think I discovered it um, myself. My family was always very musical, but there's certainly no um, filmmakers or film composers in my family mm. before me. Uh, it's basically all I ever wanted to do. I, I was probably four or five years old when I fell in love with film music and started collecting soundtrack albums. And, and certainly by the time I was eight or nine, I started trying to write film music. And, and um, really, that was, um, that was the only career I ever really pursued. I, it was sort of an obsession in my childhood. And, mm. and so, you know, really by the time I was... Um, by the time I, I was 23 and I started on uh, my first real project, a professional project, which was um, Battlestar Galactica, um, you know, I, in one way I was extremely young um, for, to, for an opportunity like that. But in another way, it had already been more than 10 years that I had been dedicating my every waking minute to learn how to score films. Right. So in some ways I was... I was as prepared as a 23 year old could possibly be <laughs> for that kind of opportunity. But yeah, I've always adored film music. When I was a kid, film composers were my heroes. Right. Uh, Alan Silvestri, Basil Polidorus, Danny Elfman, Jerry Goldsmith, Elmer Bernstein, Ennio Kone. I mean, these, the, you know, every weekend I would run out and see the new movies just to hear new music from uh, my favorite composers. Right. And you're talking about, Growing up in the 80s and 90s, that every weekend you could hear a score by one of the masters, if not more than one, you know? Um, so it was a really exciting time to be a kid and to discover film music because even on like, you know, sort of subpar crappy action movies, you could still hear a Jerry Goldsmith score. Or a James Horner score, you know, like that was a really exciting time and a very inspiring time for me. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it, it, to be honest, I, I think we're very similar in age and I was exactly the same as you. You know, <laughs> you would go and see yeah. movies that weren't necessarily the greatest. But like you say, if it had a Jerry Goldsmith score... I'm there. Oh yeah, that's it. You know, it's 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 one of those things. So, did you, uh, did you go to a uh, a musical school for this, or were you kind of self teaching? 
I was um, predominantly self-taught for a long time. Mm. I um, I took piano lessons starting when I was about five, so that gave me a basic facility at a keyboard that um, that was useful to me. Um, but I essentially just started writing music when I was a kid, and I think I got my first keyboard that had a built-in sequencer when I was maybe 10. And then when I got into high school, so when I was like 14, um, my parents got me a computer with a sequencer in it. So, you know, by the time I'm about 14, I'm working in uh, Master Tracks Pro. But (laughs) let me tell you, the, the ability to lay out a MIDI sequence graphically to go back and edit. I mean, really, that was a liberating um, thing for me. Mm. And I just wrote film music in every style that I possibly could. So when Tombstone came out, I was like, oh, wow, now I know what a Western is. I'm going to write a Western theme. I'm going to write a horror theme. I'm going to write science fiction music. And and all of this culminated um, in my senior year of high school. I sort of had a, um, almost like a quarter life crisis where I just, I had to know if I could actually score a film. And so I, I spent a couple months writing a film with a friend of mine. We wrote out a screenplay and it was like a sort of a fantasy science fiction adventure comedy. And then I just started scoring it. I, I had every line of dialogue. I had every shot in my mind and I wrote a 75 minute score every scene every cue main title to end credit suite um and that took me a year Hmm. i was actually i had graduated high school by the time i actually finished this and and uh and and the other incredibly profound thing that happened to me during this time is that i met um elmer bernstein wow i guess my junior year of high school is when I met him and ended up working with him for off and on for about 10 years, the last 10 years of his life and, um, and sort of became one of his final, um, proteges. So, so that, you know, to say, did I get formal training, you know, yes and no, I Hmm. certainly, um, did a lot of work on my own, but, but I learned a lot, um, from from Elmer and my formal training really didn't start until I went to college where I went to USC Thornton School of Music and and majored in just regular composition so yeah. I studied theory and harmony and counterpoint history and and just picked up on all the things that that I did not learn in high school um and that combination of that, like that early background where I was just really passionate and obsessed and writing music um, on my own for, for, for years, combined with the formal training that I got when I was a little bit older, um, you know, made me a pretty well-rounded um, musician by the time I, by the time I graduated in my early twenties. Yeah. I mean, you, you are, I've seen videos of you, you're an multi-instrumentalist. Has there ever been any kind of desire to step away from film music and go down the band route perhaps? Oh, uh, maybe. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I definitely, um, I definitely get bored easily, which is why film is so wonderful for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have been able to channel my interests into the various projects that I've been offered. And mm. and in many ways that has that has been a 
a symbiotic relationship between filmmakers and myself. I, I, I have sort of, I've been offered a really diverse um, amount of films and, mm. and television shows. So it, 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 it definitely scratches an itch, you know? Um, I've, I, I, um, I love film music. I love the, the sensation of the captive audience. I mean, really more than just about any other medium, a film and television show guarantees the, the attention of your audience. So that's, there's something magical about that, um, that, um, that, uh, can't be replicated. I think if you're just making an album, um, with that said, I love performing live. I mm. love getting up in front of an audience and, and, um, you know, once in a while I definitely combine those two passions and perform my film and television music live, um, and sort of get a little bit of the, um, rock and roll experience, but with my music that has found a home in fans' hearts via film and TV. So mm. I like to try to do as many diverse things as possible, but there really is a reason I think I'm, multiple reasons I'm drawn to film and television music, and, and it, it, it definitely feels like my home. You know, like yeah. this, is what I, this is why I'm here. This is why I'm like on this planet is to do this. I, I would say that was, uh, you know, if, if I was a gambling man, I would bet completely that that is exactly what you are here to do. And I'd probably go as far as to say, you have to be the hardest working man in show business right now because every time I look up, oh, it's a Bear McCreary score. Oh, it's a Bear McCreary score. Oh, look, Bear McCreary <laughs> scoring that. And it's kind of like, does this guy ever stop? Does he take a break? And then I sit back and I think, well, no, because I don't want him to take a break because I really love what he does and I'm intrigued to see what's coming next. And uh, for me, I actually, I, I didn't realize that kind of your first big thing until recently was actually uh, Battlestar Galactica, which I'll be, a hand on my heart, I'm a horror guy normally. I'm not really a sci-fi guy, but when BSG started, I had friends of mine at the time saying, look, I know you're not really into the sci-fi thing, but just watch this show. I guarantee you'll like it. And it honestly, it took me, I think maybe the show was in its second or third season at that point. And I was like, look, I'll, I'll watch one or two episodes, okay, just to say I've seen it. And then before I know it, my weekend was completely gone and I was obsessed with <laughs> Battlestar Galactica. I mean, that show... I, I I don't know what it is. It was just wow. It completely blew me away on every level. But you know, I'm listening. I'm watching the show and I'm hearing the music. And being a film music fan, I'm kind of like, this is really like, who is this guy? And I look, I'm like, oh, Bear McCreary. Like, oh, you know, well, that's a name <laughs> to look at in the future. And then like the next thing I see, uh, I think it was the Terminator TV show, the Sarah Connor Chronicles. Yeah, I'm like, oh, it's Bear McCreary. And then ever since then, every time I kind of stop and look up, I'm like, oh, right. Yeah, Bear did that. And Bear did that. And Bear huh. did that. And it's, it's like you have worked on so many different undiverse projects. Is there, a, is, is there anything out there for you yet that you haven't tackled? Um, oh, so many things. And, and in fact, I, I'm, I'm finding now that more than ever before, I'm, I'm sort of branching out into new genres, mm. you know, and like, I'll tell you a quick story that, that, that epitomizes this. Um, there's a movie coming out here in the States, uh, next month called rebel in the rye. That is a biopic of JD Salinger chronicling his writing of catcher in the rye, mm -hmm. um, starring Nicholas Holt and Kevin Spacey. And it's written and directed by Danny strong, um, who, uh, is an acclaimed writer. And essentially it is, 
nothing about this film matches anything uh, on my credit list. There's no time travel. There's no zombies. There's no robots. There's no pirates. <laughs> there's no magic. You know what I mean? Like, like even the period pieces that I've done, things like Outlander have time travel. Hmm. Uh, you know, Black Sails has pirates. Like, <laughs> e, you know, Da Vinci's Demons had magic. Like, even the period stuff that I've done had genre elements. Hmm. And, um, you know, I, I, um, I, I, I work really hard uh, to convince Danny Strong that uh, I was the guy to score his movie. Um, I, I was really drawn to the material, and I loved his script. And, you know, he even kind of flat out told me, like, wow, you know, your music is is really good. But, like, <laughs> you're not the guy right. for this movie, you know? I mean, why would you hire the Walking Dead guy right, right. to score this biopic? And 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 it was interesting because it it took a lot of effort on my part and and uh, to convince Danny to take a chance on me. And, and he did. And the score is really beautiful. And I'm, I'm really proud of it. But it was an interesting example uh, uh, and, uh, of, of really where you can be sort of placed hmm. in a box by, by a filmmaker, just by your credits or your name. Um, there's another movie coming out um, called Animal Crackers that's a family animated cartoon, mm. uh, a fully CG film uh, with Ian McKellen and John Krasinski, Emily Blunt. It's super fun. Uh, it's very much in the kind of Pixar Disney style. And again, that one I thought, oh, I want to do that. That's like I can totally do my homage to like Jerry Goldsmith 80s comedies <laughs> here. And I had to work really hard to convince that filmmaker, why would you hire the Walking Dead Battlestar Galactica guy. Um, and I find, you know, I did a documentary that uh, debuted at Sundance. It's called Unrest that's coming out. Um, even the weirdo little um, Anne Hathaway movie, Colossal. Oh. Um, none of these were like obvious. I was the obvious choice. Mm. And what is exciting to me is that every time I work on a movie like the ones I'm describing, you know, these filmmakers now in their mind go oh like like bears the guy to do family cartoons or bears the guy to do uh period dramas you know and what's and and so it's interesting that like i feel like i'm starting to sort of chip away at the the reputation that i i was grateful for and i'm still mm -hmm. grateful for like sci-fi horror uh television especially like if you got a sci-fi horror tv thing my name is is a safe one to bring yeah. up like yeah. You know what I mean? Like, uh, and that's wonderful. And, and I've, and some of my favorite projects have emerged exactly from that. I mean, in uh, Marvel's agents of shield is a perfect example, hmm. um, where, where, um, you know, that, that was, that was, that was wonderful. Um, but I also like doing different things and, and I've been very, um, not only open to doing demos and writing stuff on spec, but like enthusiastic about it. It's been sort of a fun challenge for me over the last couple of years to say, I want to get movies that people don't want me on, you know, <laughs> like this, this guy doesn't want me to do his family film and I'm going to show him I can do it. You know, <laughs> like that's been really fun. And, and, and it's been, um, it's sort of, uh, been a very exciting time. Um, and, and there's even more projects rounding, uh, the corner in the horizon that, are going to start coming out that I, that I think are emblematic of this kind of philosophy that I've had over the last couple of years. And, 
and, and that's been really fun. Um, you know, and I, and, and I, I'd like to think that the cumulative result of this over the next few years will, will be, I mean, my dream, if I can, if I can just clarify it, Tony, like my dream please, would please to be a composer like Elmer Bernstein or Alexandre Desplat or, or even Danny Elfman or, or even, you know, Hans to a lesser degree, but it's like, these are composers that can score anything. Hmm. If you have a movie in any genre and you say, hey, what if we got Danny Elfman to score it? No one would say he can't do it. You might say we can't afford him, but no one would say Danny's not capable of doing yeah. a comedy, an adventure, a romance. Like he's done it all. And, and, and Elmer Bernstein, you know, my mentor was sort of like the king of this. He was the Western guy. He was the comedy guy. He was the biblical epic guy. He was the intimate chamber drama guy. You know, and and I and I feel like more and more in the modern era that that actually is kind of difficult to do. You 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 can see composers kind of getting known for certain things and and excelling at that and being wildly successful at that. Mm. But I actually think it takes a pointed effort to to sort of fight against that. And and that's just going to be, I think, my experiment over the next couple of years is just see like you know what are the what are the genres of movies and TV shows that, that, that I haven't done and, and why haven't I done them? Let's fix it, you know? <laughs> well, time is definitely on your side. I mean, the body of work you've already had, I mean, you're a young gentleman. You've, you've got many, many, many years left doing this. And, you know, I would, I would love to think I've got another <laughs> 50 at least, at least, at least, you know, when I look at, you know, obviously when I look at the, I don't want to say like a list of composers, composers, but there are, you know, you do definitely put people like Jerry Goldsmith and Bernard Herrmann. You put those kind of guys on a pedestal because they could literally do anything. And they, they usually yeah. did. I mean, especially Jerry. Jerry's body of work is just absolutely insane. When you go back and look at how he started, you know, to what he transitioned into and to what he was doing towards the end of his career. It's like when I look at your body of work now, I see, you know, oh, you know, there's sci-fi and there's horror and there's TV and there's different bits and pieces. And, you know, somewhat, I guess from a, an outsider's point of view, you could tag, oh, well, Bear does all of those kind of dark shows. But when you actually listen to the music, that's the part that really gets me. I mean, for, for example, Colossal. I had mm. no clue what to expect when I, when I first heard Colossal. I was like, okay, all right, I've read the read the synopsis of the film. Oh, Bear's doing the score. I'm definitely going to check that one out. So as soon as I heard the record, I wasn't really sure what to expect because I'm I'm thinking, right, well, it's kind of, there's a Godzilla element to it, but it's not that kind of a film. It's an emotional drama and, they're, they're, you know, there's some black comedy in there. So how do you score a film like this? And me as a, a layman that doesn't understand film scoring other than listening to it, I was kind of like, right, come on. What's this going to sound like? And when I dropped the needle, as soon as I listened to the record, I just thought, yep, that's exactly the right score for that kind of film. And <laughs> I found that with so many of your scores, you know, for The Forest and The Boy and Ten Cloverfield Lane, it seems to me like whatever it is you're doing, whenever you're coming into a project, you seem to really understand what is up on the screen. Because if the image on the screen and the sound doesn't gel it totally takes you out of the film. But I know that whenever I'm watching something that you've scored, I'm right there and I'm right in it. And it does seem to me like you have an innate gift of getting right to the point of what the music is supposed to be doing. I, 
I appreciate that, and thank you. And I, I, I love that you mentioned Jerry Goldsmith because he really, I think, epitomizes the kind of dr- dream path mm. that I have for my life. And 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 he had that ability you're describing, where he could find a sound that would instantaneously take you into the world of the movie, and 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 in many ways transcend the movie itself. Sometimes, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and I am, uh, you know, I, I am, I'm excited by that. And I, and I'm, I, I keep having this funny experience where I, where I'm, I'm talking with a filmmaker and I'll play them a demo and then they'll, 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 they'll say, oh my gosh, like that's so unexpected. I love that you're, you're doing the unexpected thing. You know, I would have never expected to have a Turkish Yaili tambour playing the, the, heroine's theme in 10 Cloverfield Lane, mm. you know, or, or I wouldn't have expected the, um, ch- Japanese children's choir singing folk songs over the forest. But the funny thing is I never m- intentionally do the unexpected. <laughs> That's actually the first thing I think of it, To me, it's the most obvious choice. I I'm never trying to like be subversive. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> I, I'm, I just kind of go, you know, what would be really cool. It's like this. And, and so it's funny when you realize like from your perspective, you're just doing what you think is sort of the safe and obvious choice. Well, the, mm. it's almost like the movie's telling you what it needs. Right. But from someone else's perspective, you're just blowing their mind, doing the last thing they would have <laughs> ever thought to do. Um, so that's sort of funny. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know what that means, but, but it's an interesting experience. And I, and I definitely try to trust my initial instinct and I really enjoy working with people that let me kind of explore that mm. initial instinct, people that are kind of open, even if the idea is a little weird, um, they kind of let you fumble around and, and find that, that idea that you had. And, mm. um, and I've been very fortunate on all the projects that you mentioned, uh, you know, I had directors and producers that were totally open to that. Yeah, yeah. Before we leave Jerry, because I, I yes. Jer- Jerry Goldsmith is my is my all time favorite composer. You know, I have I have a lot of favorite composers, but Jerry, as far as I'm concerned, is is the A number one. Um, I, you... I I tend to agree with you, by the way. If I <laughs> if I had to pick one he'd be the one i just think uh there was something about jerry's music that even when i throw on a record now i just instantly get that emotional pang of whatever it is he was going for and it's kind of like yeah you know it's still this record is you know a lot older than me and yet it's still it seems so vibrant the music still sounds phenomenal and i can kind of get an idea in my head of what the images on the screen were supposed to have been um yeah if i haven't necessarily seen the film but you you actually you worked on the project damien the tv show which was <laughs> yes i people can say what they like about the tv show me personally i liked the tv show i am a, i'm a oh. big i'm a big omen fan a fan of the original yeah. three movies and, and if you hung into the end it went bonkers exactly in the second half exactly. i mean if anything the shortcoming of the show was in trying to be a normal TV show for two or three episodes because mm-hmm. that's what everyone expected. Mm-hmm. And once Glenn kind of made the episodes that I think the Studio Network wanted, I mean, as a horror fan, when we got to episode four, five, six, seven, yeah. and then the finale, I was like, <laughs> this is the weirdest, boldest, scariest, most effed up thing I've ever 
scene. Yeah. I loved Damien. Yes, me too. Me too. And I, I think Damien's going to be one of those shows that in a few years time, people really come round and then like, why would, why did they never do more with that? And it'll yeah. be like, well, where were you guys two, three years ago when the uh, show was on? So but- uh, Totally. But you know, one of the main reasons I was excited about Damien was getting to revisit well, uh, Jerry Goldsmith's yes. score for the moment, which is absolutely one of my favorites. And it was also a chance for me to kind of push out into the deep end of the pool a mm. little bit because I had never done a lot of choral music um i'd done a few cues here and there throughout battlestar galactica um and 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 my score for god of war would have been in the future Hmm. but at that time i i just hadn't done a lot with choirs and i thought okay well now this will really force me to um dig into choral writing a little more and what better score to play around with than jerry goldsmith's (laughs) score for the omen and it was especially great because this was a Fox um, production, so they actually had the rights to use Jerry Goldsmith's music right. in uh, the end of the first episode. So um, I uh, did my own arrangement of his theme, uh, introduced a lot of – there were sort of a lot of contemporary and electronic elements that I was using in the score. So mm. I got to kind of – I mean I certainly wasn't trying to you know, um, improve on the original recording. I mean I, think I was <laughs> – excited to say, look, people, the thing I want to take is the choir, and then let me um, supplement the orchestra for more kind of uh, gritty synthesis and a, mm. and a, and a more modern sound. Uh, but that was just a joyous experience. And, and being able to take my inspiration from Jerry and use um, choral chants and whispers and satanic text and all these like really fun colors, and then score um, 10 episodes of this just absolutely insane TV show. <laughs> I mean, it was a blast. Um, I was, I was of course bummed that it didn't get picked up for a second season, but at the same time I had so much fun, mm. um, so much fun on that show. And you know what? It, it's not, uh, uh, a show that I hear fans talk about a lot. So I'm like really exciting to hear you, uh, here you mention it, and mm. I and I love to think that it will sort of float around for a while, and I think fans of the genre especially will just continue to discover it. I think they will, and I, I, I seriously do believe. You know, sometimes there are shows that kind of go away, and then a few years later they get rediscovered, and people start, you know, oh, you know, all right, it was cancelled, it might not come back, but it'll, it'll get a new life on home video. You know, this happened with so many of my favourite TV shows, movies now, they Absolutely. kind of they found their life on home video and, and now with netflix and amazon prime and you know uh itunes and stuff it, everything yeah. is so accessible I, I i think there is more for damien out there uh i will say that and i will say that the music in the show is absolutely phenomenal so if you haven't heard it listener please just even if you just watch the show for the music you are doing yourself an enormous favor believe me let me and that. let me also just say to those listening, uh, if you're horror fans, hang in for a couple episodes. Hmm. Like, admittedly, like the, the first episode is a lot of setup and it and it feels like it's sort of recreating the world of the first movie. You hang in to the, I want to say episode five or six. There's a point at which it sort of untethers from the obligation to sort of... Um, live in the world of the film the omen and Mm. it kind of becomes its own thing and it is so 
bizarre and scary and unpredictable. And it, 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 it just sort of like breaks free of the narrative rules of television. Um, that's really where I fell in love with the show. So I definitely like say, give it a few episodes and, uh, and there's a lot to discover. There is, there is, there definitely, definitely is. And I want to switch from one, one horror TV show that maybe didn't get the love that it so rightfully deserved, uh, to another that, uh, I think as of the time of recording, this is the most watched television show in the entire world which uh, yeah. is a little show called The Walking Dead. I'm sure you guys out there may have heard of it uh, by now. And that is primarily the reason why we are speaking today. So I think we, as much as I would love to carry on talking about Damien and, and tons of the other projects that you've done, <laughs> yeah. let's talk about The Walking Dead. So The Walking Dead, the, the score is coming out in this wonderful deluxe edition through Lakeshore Records. And the, the show has just never slowed down. And it's grown and grown and grown. And it takes a lot for a television show to become literally a worldwide phenomenon. But that is what The Walking Dead is. And me as a fan, a big part of that show's appeal is the music in the show. And you've been there since the beginning. So t tell me about how you became a part of The Walking Dead and what it's like to be a part of such a huge show. Well, um, I think you've done a pretty accurate job of <laughs> describing uh the show i will tell you in the early days having done uh battlestar galactica i felt very much like i know how this is going to play out it'll mm. find its passionate cult fan base and it'll kind of be the the best show nobody's watching <laughs> you know which is a which is a uh, a description many of the shows i have worked on have shared over the years <laughs> Uh, obviously walking dead did not fall into that category. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and I, and I, and I think it's wonderful that it's found this incredibly, um, mainstream audience. And I, and I think, um, a lot of the credit for that goes to the, uh, director and, uh, of the first episode and the kind of creator of the show, Frank Darabont. And, um, Frank is also to answer your other question, the reason I am on the show, oh. uh, Frank uh, was a huge Battlestar Galactica fan. Um, there were even rumblings he might come in and direct an episode of Battlestar in its fourth season that never materialized. Um, but I, uh, Frank and I got together um, kind of socially a few times. I mean, he just reached out and, and uh, was a, I mean, I essentially got a fan letter from Frank Darabont. And so he and I were always looking for something to collaborate on. And when... Um, the Walking Dead came up. He brought me in to meet with him and Gail Ann Hurd before anyone had even been cast. They they had planted a flag on in Atlanta. They were going to start shooting uh, in a few months. But really, I was one of the first people hired um, on the series, mm. and um, and and we all hit it off. Um, and they um, they hired me on the show um, before he even shot it. So this gave me some time to start thinking about ideas and styles and sounds and, um, and put me in a really, I think, um, informed place by the time he got a cut together of um, Days Gone By, the first episode. And, um, and, and sort of the rest is history. I mean, I, I, I have been on from the very beginning. I just uh, started working on what will be our 100th 
episode Whoa. and that's a pretty incredible milestone yeah. um in the um in in the modern era and uh and uh so i'm excited about that it's just a hundred ep- to reach a hundred of anything is a big deal uh a hundred episodes yeah, yeah. of television is is an incredible deal in, in this day and age i don't think i've done it before i right. don't want to I don't think Eureka got that high. Battlestar never did. Um, the other show that will, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., will crack 100 this year. So I haven't done mm. that yet since we're not that far in production. But but yeah, I mean, it, it is incredible, especially as you pointed out in the era of streaming, the, the 100 number being this sort of magic syndication number. It's <laughs> still important, but nowhere near as important as it used to be. Yeah. So you can have a successful show that just kind of has eight episodes or 16 episodes. So it, to actually get that far um, is an incredible testament to how much people adore um, this show. And I, looking back when I was scoring the first episode, um, working very closely with Frank and with Gail, I... I don't know that I would have even believed it if you had said, hey, in eight, in eight years, you'll be doing 100, your 100th episode of this. Um, you, know, you know what I mean? Like, I yeah. don't think I've been able to wrap my brain around it. Um, but here we are. Yeah, yeah. Has your approach to scoring the show changed since uh, the early days because of how big the show has actually become not just um, like inside and outside of the show? Because obviously they, the 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 group, the core group of the show, they've, they've traveled, they've gone all over now. So they're experiencing new places, uh, new people, new groups, but also because the show has become this giant beast, has your approach in any way changed? It's a good question. And I, the answer is sort of maybe Mm. yes and no. Here's here. My approach has changed radically, but not for any of the reasons that you mentioned. Oh, okay. Um, the reason my, first of all, just to address the things that you brought up, um, yes, absolutely. The scope of the story has expanded tenfold. Um, I think the defining moment in the first episode is, um, you can hear it in a cue on the album called, uh, Rick's despair, I think, where, uh, Rick comes home and his family's gone and he breaks down and he sobs Mm -hmm. and there's no dialogue it's just this heart-wrenching moment. To me, that's the first episode in a nutshell. Now, a hundred episodes later, you know, we have a cast of dozens, and it's this gigantic war between four communities. So obviously there's an expansion in the narrative that has required um, me to adapt the sound of the score. Mm-hmm. Now, to get at the real um, change in my approach. Um, cause that, that only the, the change in the narrative doesn't change my approach. That just changes the sort of language I'm using, the instrumentation, the themes, the approach has actually changed because the showrunners have changed. Right. And that has actually been, it's actually been three different TV shows. And I worked with Frank Darabont on the first season. In the second season, I worked with Glenn Mazzara who would go on and create Damien that we were talking mm-hmm. about. Um, worked with him for a couple seasons. And then for the fourth season, I started working with the new showrunner, Scott M. Gimple. So every one of these showrunners brings their own aesthetic. They bring their own workflow. Um, and, and very frequently when a, when a show changes showrunners or a film changes directors, the composer changes also. 
Uh, and I have certainly been on both sides of this situation, mm. uh, having been on a, a show where uh, showrunners changed and I was fired. I've been on a show where I was hired when a showrunner changed. It's just the most common thing ever. So I'm really grateful to Glenn Mazzara and Scott Gimple and Gail Ann Hurd, who's been uh, involved uh, from the beginning. They've all given me a chance to learn their style, to adapt what I was doing before to fit their new kind of narrative vision. And right. I think the show has benefited from this. Mm. It's one of the reasons that the show has stayed so vibrant um, in that, you know, you've got a hundred episodes, but it feels like this long sprawling narrative because we kind of get these new voices. And every time we get a new voice, the scope of the show expands. Yeah. Um, so that's been a, it's been a, it's been a challenging uh, run, but it's also been really rewarding because I kind of take all the sounds that I developed before and filter them through a new showrunner's perspective. And I get to learn what they are bringing to The Walking Dead and adapt my style accordingly. Hmm. Do you have kind of, um, I don't want to say like a Walking Dead palette, but are there certain elements, considering the show has been going on for so long now, and as you mentioned, 100 episodes, I mean, that's a lot. I, would, I wouldn't even want to hazard a guess how many hours of music <laughs> you've probably created. But is there kind of a, maybe a notepad or something, or even kind of just in your brain where you're like, well, that's a Walking Dead like that's a walking dead signature and you you use these throughout the different seasons for different things for different characters is there something like that that you have you know the, it's a great question and i and i think the short answer is surprisingly no right um in any other project i would say yes hmm. and and the difference is because of the aforementioned change in creative leadership there have been certain things that have been introduced there have been certain things that have sort of gradually phased out and now i approach every season of the walking dead and, and in fact even half seasons we kind of take them in eight episode runs hmm. i i approach them as little mini movies or macro movies um but i i approach them as this is what this eight episode run is about right. uh, for example if you look at um season seven as a kind of a block i i uh i feel like as a fan of the show i am safe in describing it as a as like a misery delivery system <laughs> the purpose of this season is to break your spirit over <laughs> and over and over and the showrunners have a vision here i mean this is all set up for what is coming in season eight mm. but knowing that that it's like even these full 16 episodes have a specific narrative function. I kind of narrowed my palette down, like just to just to like really kind of turn the screws on the audience and and limit the colors so that you really feel kind of trapped hmm. in in this place. I mean, you're you're stuck with Negan. You are trapped with him. And so that's why those moments in season seven, mid-season finale, and especially the season finale mm. where that starts to change it's so satisfying yeah because you get harmonic and melodic information that you have been intentionally starved of <laughs> for five six seven episodes it's it's great so you know with that said i i try to be really open-minded every time i sit down with scott and we look at a new run of episodes and i and, and i've actually found it's to my advantage 
not to have a palette of sounds where I go, oh, this is the Walking Dead signature. Oh. Because that'll just that'll just make it difficult. Right. Because I don't every time I sit down with Scott, it's like, all right, what is the story we're telling this season? I'm I'm a blank slate. And if there's stuff I can draw from previous seasons, I will. Mm-hmm. And there very often is, but I don't I don't bring it to the table. I, I try to kind of be really zen about it. Right. Oh, yeah. hmm. That's a. I'm sure that's a. It keeps things fresh, <laughs> uh, because The Walking Dead has such a strong cast of characters. Uh, some that have been with us since day one, some that have come in very, very recently. Uh, and if you're not a fan of the comic book and don't read the comic book, a lot of these characters will be very new to you. Is there a character over the last seven seasons that has been a particular standout to write for? Um. Probably Negan. I knew you were uh, going to say that. <laughs> Negan, yeah. Like, I mean, really, well, what's so fun about Negan is that he, and it's fun about him in the comics, too, is mm. that he represents um, the, the, the ultimate antagonist for our heroes. And, and in many ways, the governor represented this at an earlier stage in their development. But mm. one of the things that I admire about the story is that Kirkman... Robert Kirkman, who, who created the comics um, and is involved with the show, he let his heroes become smart. And there was a point pretty early on where if a character actually succumbed to a, a walker, to a zombie, there, there were some sort of you know, increasingly clever circumstances that allowed a character to, to fall for that. Because ultimately, hmm. the, the zombies are kind of predictable. It, at a certain point, once you've made it far enough into the story, if if you get killed by a zombie, it's your fault. Yeah. You know? So, what do you do when all your heroes become badasses and can survive in this world? You, you have to introduce a new element, a new person hmm. that is actually evil because ultimately the, the 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 zombies the the walkers aren't evil there there's no motivation there no that's what makes negan so fun as a character makes him fun to score it just like when jeffrey dean morgan is on screen he's just chewing the scenery and it's <laughs> wonderful because he represents the only real challenge hmm. to our heroes and i think that's what has us on edge he's on you're on edge every time that guy is on screen or even when he's not on screen when he's just sort of a phantom presence and musically that's been really fun for me i kind of um introduced these weird electric guitar textures for him that they're not they i guess it's a theme it's it's more like just a specific color that Mm. is used for him but but at the same time Jeffrey's performance is so magnetic. It doesn't need anything more than that. Um, but yeah, I think that that really very few characters on the show have themes. Hmm. Basically, none of them do. Uh, but Negan does. And, and, and that tells you everything you need to know right there. Like yeah. in a cast of dozens, <laughs> there's only one character that is so different than all the others <laughs> that you go, yeah, that guy, that guy needs a theme. And it's yeah. <laughs> It's really true. It's really true. You, yeah, Being a fan, I'm a fan and reader of the comic book. So I have known of Negan for a long, long time. And it was kind of the countdown yeah. to when he would come into the show uh, because yeah. I've been watching the show since day one. And it was kind of like, I wonder how Negan is going to sound. And um, 
yeah, not, let's just say that I was uh, not disappointed in the slightest, and uh, I really enjoyed this last season. I mean, it's like you said earlier, this season is just despair and will crush you, crush you, yeah. crush you, crush you, crush you, but fear not, because The Walking Dead is back on your screens very, very soon, and yes. uh, I, I literally, I cannot wait. I mean, and, and I can say that, like, uh, one of the things I admire so much about Scott Gimple the showrunner is the long-term vision that he has. Mm. And so when I see what I consider the more casual fan of The Walking Dead, maybe the, the fan that isn't really a horror fan. And by the way, I love those fans. I love people that say, oh, I don't watch horror stuff, but I got into The Walking Dead. I feel like Scott was challenging those people in season seven. He's challenging them. Right. to stay in the show hmm. because it is so horrific <laughs> and so dark. But one of the things that's a thrill about reading the walking dead comic is, you know, whenever things are really good, things are about to get really bad. Mm -hmm. And whenever things are really, really bad, something righteous and triumphant will happen. <laughs> and, and that's what I think Scott has done in season seven is he's wound that slingshot up so far or he's pulled the crossbow back so far um you know that audiences are at their breaking point and in the new season you know he fires it mm. and the the narrative payoff the action is so intense uh in season eight that i i i just i am i just love that he's built it in such an intentional way even if it means that the experience of getting through season seven was excruciating for a lot of people. It'll be worth it. Well, I now want to see season eight more than I possibly did before. I didn't think that yeah. was possible. I didn't think after <laughs> the season finale of seven, I didn't think I'd be like, right, I need to see it. Just episode one. Just give me episode one of season eight and I'll be fine. But uh, I am super pumped for that. I am super pumped for this uh, release from Lakeshore Records. I've been dying to have this music. And, uh, and now I'm able to, and Bear, it has been an absolute thrill to spend time talking to you today. So thank you for joining me. Absolutely. This was a lot of fun, Tony. Thanks so much. The Walking Dead is available now through Lakeshore Records. <laughs>